and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. So hello and welcome to series three of the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. I'm Sally Nelson and I'm delighted today to meet Jessica Dark, who I've been following for some time now. Jessica is such an active advocate within the neurodivergent community and today we'll be talking about being neurodivergent as an adult, family life with an ND family, learning and advocacy and your exciting new project which you're going to tell me all about um, for a neurodivergent uh, community hub. So let's just get um, started and if you would be kind enough Jess, because you've kindly said that I can call you Jess, um, just tell us, you know, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about, about you, where you live and how you describe your own neuro profile. So over to you. Hi, Sally. Um, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. Um, so who am I? Well, you know, um, I have been advocating for neurodivergence for a, for a very long time. Well, actually, probably for about seven years now. And this really kind of came about from recognising neurodivergence across the whole family. So like many people who are recognised as an adult, I recognised my neurodivergence through my children. Yes. So my children were diagnosed first. And then as, as I kind of researched that, then I kind of got to know myself as well. But my neuro profile has been informed over quite a considerable period of time. So I was diagnosed dyslexic with signs of dyspraxia. When okay. I was 25. All right. I went to uni a little bit later when I had two small children. And then as my children received their um, diagnoses of autism particularly, I then kind of looked into it and uh, went to the GP and was like, right, okay, I think I, I'm definitely, definitely ADHD. I kind of suspect I'm autistic as well. And they wouldn't put me through for an autism assessment like many women oh. so I got my ADHD diagnosis around the age of 35 and then had to kind of wait a few more years and go back to the GP and fight a little bit more to be put through for an autism assessment um, which I received at the age of 37. Um, since then my um, dyspraxia has been further informed by an OT who lets me know that it's it's somatodyspraxia, which is basically a sensory form of dyspraxia. And it means that I have quite impacting sensory processing differences. 
Um, oh, right. So yeah, I would kind of class myself quite new neurodivergent across across the scope um, and kind of fit into quite a lot of different diagnostic categories, which is why I often refer to myself as neurodivergent rather than just ADHD, autistic, dyslexic, because my neurotype kind of spans across quite a few. And I and yeah, I mean, thank you so much for telling me that. And and that's why I call the podcast the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast because, um, you know, I was I was only diagnosed in twenty twenty one, age um, fifty six, and um, I didn't get an autism diagnosis. It, um, they they said autism traits. I don't. It was terrible. It was a misdiagnosis. So I became re-diagnosed later on. It costs a lot of money, and it's very much in the. Um, very, very topical in the press and um, they've just had a big debate in Parliament, certainly for ADHD as well. And we are, we often have, I don't like this comorbid condition, I, a lot of the language is difficult, but I do, I do definitely understand that many of us have different spectrums and, diff- and lots and lots of different traits. So um, I can see your neuro profile and, and again with dyspraxia, you know, I'm not interested in getting a diagnosis for it. I know I bump into everything and I break my bones and I can't catch balls and I, and all these different things, you know. So I know that I am. But um, so we've got a full profile for you and you've given me an idea about what it was like going to the GP. Oh, God, it's a nightmare, isn't it? And just because this is mental health as well, can I just ask you on that, Jess? How did that affect you, that journey? Because it can be so stressful. And these are the clients that come to see me in therapy. How did it affect you? Um, well, more than anything, it was the anxiety. Yes. So, you know, I'm not very good at kind of knowing, not knowing what's going to happen next. And the diagnostic process, particularly for autism, was very long, drawn out, um, unnecessarily long. Um, The way that the service was structured was really challenging because they wouldn't give you regular updates. They wouldn't kind of give you an understanding of when you would be seen, who you would be seen by. Um, I was kind of, after a, a complaint to the CCG, um, I was kind of pushed through, which was good because I was seen within 12 months, but it wasn't great because I was given appointments here and there. I wasn't given structured appointments, oh. so they kind of fitted me in among other other people. So that was really, really challenging, and my diagnosis took a, a long time because of it. Um, I, I, I requested the DISCO assessment, What's that? Um, so it's a, a specific assessment that looks that's been designed with female autistic presentation in mind. Oh. So obviously from my background and studying psychology and, and so on and so forth, I kind of researched what assessment I thought would be most beneficial for me. And for people with different profiles, it's quite good because it doesn't look so much like an ADOS, for instance, will look from a behavioural perspective. Yeah. It looks narrative perspective so you're looking at your life you're looking at how your different neuro traits impact your day-to-day and you're looking kind of at how that has been um, developmentally from childhood all the way through to the current day so for obviously people who are not um the stereotypical presentation of autism that seems to be um you know reflected in a lot of the more mainstream behavioral diagnostic and the dsm-5 yeah um, then, 
you know, it allows people to kind of explore their neuro, well, explain their experiences a little bit more in a narrative rather than looking at, at the, the behavioural aspect. Because as we know, you know, lots of adult recognised neurodivergent people are great at masking. Yes. We're great at formulating our own strategies yeah. and supports, even if we don't realise that we're doing it. Mm. Um, and we're great at deflecting things to be, if we find them challenging so you know we can mask challenges in accessing language we can mask our anxiety because we are let's face it pros at that kind of behavior you know we've had to try to survive for a very long time but survival i mean jess you know that unfortunately there's such a mismatch in the world and in society and just on the planet for all people who are neurodifferent, it's almost like we're not meant to be on the planet. We don't fit, it doesn't work, it's nobody's accommodated. I mean, we're gonna come on to that because it's really, really important. Thank you for telling me that. I'm so glad that you you told me how difficult it was for you as is for many. And in our lifetime, will it, you know, I hope there's some big challenges. It's only by advocating that we can look at that so just going back to your um experiences and we don't have to spend an awful lot of time on this because you've got some really really interesting more stuff to tell me as well but just give me a little flavor jess about what it was like for you you know sort of um in the family uh growing up going through school and college and university just for you you know what was what was your journey like so growing also i i believe that i grew up in a neurodivergent household Right. So I believe that my parents were both neurodivergent, as were my grandparents before them. Yes. So, um, you know, of different neurotypes, not all of the same, but, you know, we are all different thinkers and we all kind of live and, you know, um, do life in a, in, a, in a way that may be different from, from the majority. So if that in itself was quite freeing in some respects. Yes but also quite challenging because um, I grew up being with shared care across both my grandparents and my parents. So I kind of had four different places, four different sets of rules, four different types of neurodivergence Ooh. kind of reforming my upbringing. Yeah, it was kind of, I had to be adaptable. Yes. And I had to kind of, but you know, I learned from each person in a different way. I learned about the beauty of being creative and the beauty of being unique and self-expression. I learned that um, very strongly from my mother that society is not built fast. And she put it down a lot to gender and class. And she struggled a lot growing up and, you know, she, she, she kind of coached me um, growing up, basically saying, you know, there's going to be some challenges out there. But you know, That's you know, amazing to have a mum like that and, and women yeah. and people around you to say that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, because they struggled themselves. But, there's a big but. Yes. Um, you know, I had these positive, amazing influences, which I think definitely did do drive my advocacy and drive my passion and determination but my behavior my challenging behavior which there was there was a lot of and um, was always blamed on me yeah oh, so because gosh. I didn't have the diagnosis you know um I'm fortunate in the fact that um and I'm going to say I'm fortunate in the fact that I've got PDA traits Okay, and I'm going to say that as a positive. Well, so do I, and I think they're absolutely brilliant. We know what we want to do, so let us just blimmin' well go on and do it. Yeah, 
I think it got me through secondary school. Sure. Because I was able to talk around teachers. Re- like I always tried to engage in a reasoning conversation about why I should and shouldn't be doing things. you know. And I was fortunate to have some teachers that were really responding to that and saw it as a sign of intelligence rather than me constantly pushing the boundaries, pushing the rules and changing what I needed to do. So, for instance, I was allowed to sit at the back of the class because I didn't want to join him in my science experiment. Yeah. I thought, right, OK, Jess, if you're going to work, you work. You know, you'll yeah. have to do the experiments that are, are done for the, the assignments that yes. are graded. But other than that, you get on and do what you want to do. And I did. And actually, I worked well because of it. And they actually moved me up a step to a teacher who didn't do that. And I just left the class. So I just leave the class and wasn't engaged. Because one thing that was really true for me growing up is I was very self-directed. I knew what I liked and what I didn't like. I couldn't engage with learning that I didn't enjoy. Yeah. But I love learning. Yes. And I'm actually quite good at learning, you know. Mm. I, you know, I really engage and I get passionate about topics. And I, I love that kind of process of learning, which is why I've learned my whole entire life. And, you know, and, and studying has been really, really central to, to a real passion of mine. Um, yeah, but I needed to the approach in a certain way. And understandably, secondary school wasn't like that. And home had rules as well. So I spent quite a lot of my time growing up kind of dodging what I had to do or doing what I had to do in a way that felt right to me. Yeah. And avoiding the people that would put the rules in place so avoiding parental figures who would tell me when i had to do things and, and things so i'd rather be away from those out of the house yes than i would be in it so, you know. so just on that, though, Jess, because that's um, for PDA, people who don't know it, um, what I am finding, and I think the research is still so young on this, um, we've been told that PDA comes under the spectrum of autism, but I have, I'm seeing PDA coming under ADHD and not necessarily ADHD and autism. But for PDA, for people who don't know ADA, um, PDA, can you just tell listeners what PDA is? Very good question. Um, because I think there's so many different interpretations of what PDA is, but I can tell you how I experience PDA. Yes. Because actually, for me, what I mean by PDA is that when things are presented in a way that are not autonomous so i don't have control over i have to do they cause me a um panic discomfort a restlessness that um creates a block yeah and that block just means and, and i think you know um I, I sometimes call it a thing oh i've got a thing around this action that i have to do yes all this you know, and I can't quite explain because it isn't, it's annoying because sometimes I want to do whatever it is that this thing is. Yes. Um, and I just can't push through because it's been a direct command. Yeah. Because my brain and the way that I navigate the world is in a much fairer way than the way society is structured. Hallelujah. That's so true. <laughs> so I talk to people on a level. I talk to children on a level. Obviously, they're still learning. I see them as disciples almost like learning things from adults. They're mini adults. They just need to, to, all they need is not to push old, old grannies, drink bleach and swear too much at a head teacher. Otherwise, leave them alone and let them 
grow and be autonomous. I love little children showing their personality. Totally. And, and saying, why? Why am yeah. I having to do this? You know, this and, and that's the, it's signs of intelligence. You know, we're talking about really intelligent kids. And we're talking about kids who are questioning the status quo, questioning why things are happening. And because a fairer society, because a lot of things aren't fair. Mm. And a lot of things aren't equal. Mm. You know, I, I respond to linear structures. I really respect people that know more than me when they c- converse with me or teach me or show me on a equal level. Yes. I, not that we're equal in knowledge, but we're equal in people. Yeah. And I love learning from other people. And actually, I'm really good at saying when I'm not right and um, when I'm in those situations. But when I am placed in a position of a low, lower than in a hierarchy, it, it creates um, something within me that causes me to, to fight back. Yes. And it's innate. It's a passion. It that, is. It's a drive within me. And a stress response, and the, it's kind of wrapped up in lots of different things. I see it as um, something that is innate. So, unlike what you were saying previously, I do see it as an ADHD and autism combination because that's what I see most likely for PDA profile. And I see it as a different way of expressing certain autistic traits. So, you know, we're talking about different ways that different things can present in a neurotype. So autism presents in a multitude of different ways. And for me, that need for structure and routine is that PDA expression. It is me challenging. It's me restructuring the world to something that feels right for me. And it's not just needing to be a certain way. It needs to feel right to my ethos or my core. And I think one thing that kind of really comes through with PDA traits in particular is that we are very passionate people who have a very clear sense of justice. Oh, yes. (laughs) And we, um, you know, and that, and we embody it unlike any other i think we embody that sense of justice within ourselves and it becomes our moral code in everything we do some people they exert their morals and their beliefs in certain areas i think certain neurotypes embody their beliefs and it has to be part of everything they do otherwise they do not feel that they're being true to themselves and i think for certain neuro profiles being true to yourself is something that re- is so incredibly fundamental to who we are. It is, and and you'll be very, um, or you'll be happy to hear that I have another guest coming on, which I won't mention names at the moment, but they're a lawyer, and oh. and an autistic lawyer. So we we will be talking a lot about justice. Just going back on what you said, there. I'm sorry, we're going off a little bit, but I will come back. It's just you're so interesting. Is um. We are such a paradox. We're such a paradox when we're ADHD and um, autistic as well with the Zen diagram and the differences. So we like structure. We like sameness. We like routine and everything else. But um, we're very adaptable. So mm-hmm. so a lot of um, neurotypical people and um, people looking at us will think, oh, my God, they're so black and white and they're so stubborn and they won't do anything. And it is our need for autonomy and control. But in the same way, we're incredibly, incredibly adaptable. And for me, the way that works 
is when I've gone through a very difficult time mentally, um, I've been overwhelmed, I've been burnt out, I've had a difficult life experience, I go through it, I say, shit, F, all the rest of it, I hate that. And then I brush, I have some rest, I brush myself down, and then I crack on. And I think the thing about a lot of neurodivergent people, we have this amazing ability to be determined to overcome adversity and to be adaptable. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah, massively. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that's what we get. That's the power we get within ourselves, that self-knowledge. Yeah. When we receive a diagnosis. Yes. So I think bringing it back to, you know, the importance of diagnosis um, is incredibly fundamental, I think, for many of us, especially who are recognised as adults, because we, when we receive that diagnosis, okay, a load of the information isn't great, let's face it, it's medicalised, it's it's not um, talking about autism in a way that I feel is reflective of our community. Um, it's dehumanising sometimes and it's derogatory as well. Um, but what we get to do is we connect with our community and we learn more about ourselves. And through that diagnosis, we get to explore ourselves in a completely different way to how we've ever seen it before. Because yes. I don't know about you, Sally, like growing up, I didn't know that, you know, some of these traits were... I would have a strength as well as a challenge in, you know. My behaviour was often reprimanded. Um, I often thought, like, why am I so different to everybody else? Mm. I actually felt like I had so much more emotion than everybody else. Where's everybody else's feelings? Yeah. You know, I, I was just brimming with so much energy and emotion and, and, and I couldn't understand why other people, especially growing up, my peers, just wouldn't have the enthusiasm or the energy or the, you know, or want to explore things in the world and the world the way that I wanted to. And I found that really, really frustrating, really frustrating. Um, but also I kind of would blame myself for not being able to do simple things that other people could do. Yes. And through the like the power of like diagnosis and exploration, I've been able to go, right, okay, I do have some loads of challenges. You know, I don't even want to minimize it. I yes. have a really lucky, I've got incredible support network. I see therapists, I've got mentor, I've got help in the home. I am extremely supported and I would not be able to do, be doing what I do today without that level of support but you know I can now go okay I do have these really frustrating things in, in, but I can now value my strengths I now understand why I find those challenges difficult and I can actually really concentrate on fulfilling my passion and drive and things that I want to do now because yeah there are bits that are hard but when you know what they are, you can put the supports in place. You yeah. can. And I th- and I, I have to say that I have a neurodivergent family, although they don't like talking about it because I only found out two years ago, age 56, and they're all adults. Um, just give me a little journey about um, your beautiful, wonderful, lovely neurodivergent family. Yeah. And um, so I have three children and they are my, my world. 
you know, if we want to be kind of aligned with um, how the medical profession kind of talk about autism, my children were my special interest yeah. from the minute that they were born. Oh, my goodness. I just wrapped up everything in child development. I wanted to learn everything about them. They're just absolutely amazing. Yeah. yeah and I have grown three, or growing, should I say, yes. three very amazing different expressions of neurodivergence in my home and we are all three of us uh, all three of them and myself are very very different from each other yeah and it's wonderful i mean we um we fit across so many different neurotypes you know dyslexia dyspraxia dysgraphia adhd autism pda profile um tics functional neurological disorder um, which for people who do not know what yeah. that is, when people have been put under a heightened amount of stress and then you're a divergent, it actually correlates quite a lot with ADHD. Um, that person may express that stress through tics. Okay. That stress through absence seizure. Yes. They may express that, um, but express that um, stress through actually having a seizure, losing language and having uncontrollable behaviours. So it's a stress response, and it's usually triggered by having to be under stress for a very, very long period of time. So it's been amazing and heartbreaking, our journey, because some of the children, like my eldest particularly, she's always got on particularly well at school, and her challenges particularly lie around social communication and friendship groups and fallings out and anxiety around that. Um, but my middle she didn't get on with the environment. She's very, very sensory sensitive and tactile defensive, and she found it extremely distressing. So yeah. we've had periods of homeschooling. We've had to go to the tribunal. I've had to do parental applications for EHCP for her and my youngest, who has more of a dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD profile. Interestingly, not diagnosed ADHD, but that's through his own choice. So yes. um, he's got an autism diagnosis and it kind of covers the supports for ADHD anyway. So I said, well, okay, you know, if that is your choice, that is your choice. And what I love about my family is that we all understand and help each other. Now, the difference between diagnosed as children and as an adult is, I believe, with the right input. Now, there's a lot of input that's not great. Yes. Let's put it that way. Yeah. But with the right input. And what I mean by that is children growing, understanding how they think and recognising that that's not necessarily a bad thing as the medical profession and other people may put it out to be, but actually they've got a lot of strengths. Yes. I always say, you know, any neuro expression, so say it be anything, you know, social comms, executive functioning, for every aspect that there is a challenge, there is a strength that correlates. There is. Yeah, so there is. Yeah. So I, they have grown up knowing, yes, this is a challenge for me. And yes, this is different to most people, but I have got this strength, you know. And because they have grown knowing that from young, they're really great at putting strategies in place. And sometimes they look at me and like kind of point out stuff and say, oh, mum, would you need this? Or would you need that? So one of the benefits of being diagnosed as children as opposed to being an adult is, you know, the children kind of grow up with a real understanding of their strengths as well as their challenges. And because they've had this whole, whole entire life and we're learning strategies all the time as they're growing, they're, they're, it's easier for them to really, as they start to become teenagers, to start implementing that in their day-to-day. -day. And what's really lovely about growing up in a neurodivergent household 
is that, you know, sometimes they're better at spotting what I need than I am myself. Oh, aren't you lucky to have that? My goodness, I want that in my house. So, you know, whereas my children have grown up going with me, do you need a little bit of time out? Would you like this? Would you like that? As they've grown up and they're now better at doing that themselves for themselves, they now give that back to me. Mum, do you think you need a bit of the time out here? Or should I help you with this? Or, you know, do you, you know, helping me to discover what I need when I need it. And... That's the beauty of growing up in an inclusive neurodivergent household is we've had periods where we've not understood. We've had periods where, you know, I've been going, I don't know what strategies to put in place. I'm pulling my hair out. The schools are blaming me for my children's behavior and not attending, you know, and all of this kind of thing. And like really in getting in touch with community and going, no, I'm only going to do what's in, in like informed by community. I'm only going to kind of really get back to basics and really understand how we can live differently. Because I don't believe like the, the neurotypical supports for parents and children work at all. We need to have it informed by autis- autistic and neurodivergent people themselves and what works. And taking that step back and taking a more kind of neurodivergent approach to parenting and living life together has been brilliant absolutely brilliant and to have that in your family jess is it's such an incredible example of how it can work um but i can't help my little brain there is buzzing around and it's just saying you know, you're one in many, many thousands who have got that. And we, you know, and I keep saying on my post and my advocating is we've got to go right back to basics. Um, you know, we don't get a rule book. We get this wriggling pink thing and, and, and we don't, and so many people don't even know that they're neurodivergent and we're all different as well. You know, uh, we're, we're just because we're human, we have different personalities. We may have different um, spectrums and traits and it's all different and very exciting in a family. But for goodness sake, if families could understand, if they could get the support. And so on that, you know, just on the family side, what do you think society and the leaders and, and the teachers and educators and people, what do we need to do to have more families like yours that work? I mean, it's 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 the same it's the same answers over and over again, isn't it? We need to have a better understanding, but we need to have an, a community informed understanding of neurodivergence. Yeah, we need to start strip away. So let's just stop looking at deficits. Let's start looking at neuro profiles. Let's start looking at the challenges and the strengths. Let's change our language. Yeah. When we're talking about sensory processing, let's not talk about emotion. Because actually, when I'm processing my sensory environment, it may invoke emotion, but it's not an emotional process. No. It's a few One of the main reasons I believe that many neurodivergent, particularly autistic children, struggle with emotion is because we keep on being given emotion words for sensory processing. Yes. And it's different. Yes. You know? Yeah. If you're telling me I'm angry when actually I'm overloaded, I'm not going to know the difference between overloaded and angry. I'm going to think they're the same thing because my brain is developing. You know, we need to have different language. Absolutely. Things in different ways. And we need to do that with a real strength-based approach. 
And then we've got to recognise that actually everyone has got a role to play in this. We put so much on our little people to change and adapt and get, you know, it's your fault if you're not regulating your sensory environment. Well, hang on a minute, why are we looking at this sensory environment? And then they isolate them, don't they? They isolate them. They said, I read this on a post today. Was it your post? I'm not sure. And it was saying thing, horrible things like uh, rewards and punishments, isolation, exclusion. Um, oh, good talking, Tommy. And oh, lovely walking, you know, Sarah. And just this really condescending, patronising, horrible way of, of, of doing things. It, and it's, it's harmful, isn't it's it? really, really harmful. It wasn't my post, but I want to read it. <laughs> Send it to me later, Sally. But yeah, I will. Um, you know the way that um, this is, I mean, we could go into, we could have a whole another session on on talking about this um, in particular. But unfortunately, you you've got to really look at the history of where the medical diagnostic categories come from. And unfortunately, autism in particular was born out of the Second World War. And eugenic ideology yeah the understanding or the, or the promotion that there is one amazing human that we all aspire to there's only one way of being in this world and it's, it's not it's not true we have multiple ways of seeing things we have multiple ways of processing mind and body we absolutely and, and no one's even doing that it's this mind body, I mean, it's totally what I do. I mean, I'm really interested in gut health. I'm really interested in in um, chronic stress and stress is is a, and trauma, because um, what I what I think is important not to forget is that we're all human beings and we can all have traumatic childhoods to start with and bullying and all sorts of things that happen anyway, and then we can be neurodivergent so we have sensory issues ways of processing and that can lead to our own stress anxiety and everything and then we have the third one i think there's three of how society um understands us the double empathy whereas and and all the responsibility being put on little people all the responsibility putting being put on us to change behavior and we're not getting anywhere. I'm I'm keen to, I'm looking at a 10 minute slot for one thing and a 10 minute slot for another, if that's okay, just to keep us in, in line. I'm really, thank you so much for telling me about that. And you have covered a lot. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't need to keep to, to um, the document, the document, because you've already covered it and it's really, really interesting. <clears throat> I'm just having a look around here. And you've spoken about family and, and, and with adults, um, just, you know, I found I found it extremely stressful because I thought I was mentally ill all my life. Um, and luckily, I found this amazing um, autistic coach. And when I was misdiagnosed the first time, I, I had six sessions with her and she got me through being um, diagnosed the second time. And then I was diagnosed autistic and it's the best therapy I've ever had. And I've had therapy because I thought I was mentally ill and a complete flake and broken all my life. And but the thing is, is you have to go through the assessment that's stressful and can take a lot of time. Then you go through the process of the as assessment and that is really, really stressful. And then so many people are just thrown over the side of the ship without a life belt. That post diagnosis. OK, I've got my diagnosis. I know what I am. And there might be different other differences, other spectrums and traits, too. But you've left me now. 
And this, I find such an important part of the role of psychologists and psychotherapists and counsellors and coaches is helping people. And it is sort of helping people. It's really, really, really important. And what you've done is, um, I know this is um, a passion project of yours. And I'd love to spend a good amount of time talking about this because you described it before and I'm going to ask you to repeat everything you said because it was really, really good. Please, can you tell me about your passion project and your um, neurodivergent community hub and the fact that it, it has got two parts of it, which one is um, about well-being. One is um, SEM, did you say? Um, S-T-E-M. STEM, and the role that your eldest daughter played in it. I'd love you to tell me all about it. Yeah. So coming back to just what you said, yes. introducing, um, yeah, one of the things that happened to me, I was sitting with my partner as I received my autism diagnosis, and he's very vocal. And he said, you know, we've been through all of this process. What support are you going to give Jessica? And they said, what do you need? Yes. You know, so as an adult recognised autistic woman, I'm sat there going, you know, I'm here to ask for support because I'm not just wanting a diagnostic label. The whole point of this was to get the support afterwards because I didn't believe that I could progress my career in the way that I wanted to without being better informed on how to use these supports and strategies. I just didn't think I would be able to function in that way. And that was the whole reason for diagnosis. And then I was basically told there is none. For you. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, you know, that's really kind of informed my businesses since. So I set up Hoogamy, which is subsequently closed, which was sensory focused. So that was selling sensory products for adults, because I believe that's incredibly important. You know, that adults have things that are informed for us. Loads of people don't even know they exist and they're, you know, also fantastic. And when I show them to my clients, they're mind blown. They can't believe it. And that closed, unfortunately, over the pandemic. And um, subsequently, I've been doing my PhD in organisational psychology. And And that's incredible. How far are you into the PhD? I'm in my third year. I'm going to take four years. And and my my topic is looking at female autistic employees' experiences of diagnosis disclosure in the workplace. That and so, so important. Mm. Um, Which has all kind of culminated in me setting up these hubs. I've got two hubs. One is designed for job seekers, people who are entrepreneurs or work from home. And it's really designed for us adult recognised neurodivergent people of all neurotypes. Yes. Because I like to look at neuroprocessing over the diagnostic medical categorisations. And it offers support and understanding of how our brains work, what kind of supports and strategies work for us but also to give us workplace strategies as well, because, you know, like we were talking about school earlier, the way things are taught, the way things are informed, it's not great for us neurodivergent people. It's all explained in a a very kind of typical way that doesn't really work for us. We need different supports and strategies in education. We need different supports and strategies in work. That's what the hubs are really about, is to really kind of inform people how they can create an authentic, neurodivergent work life 
and home life because I don't believe there is one can be separated from the other. They're two different families, aren't they? When you go to work, if you if you're lucky enough with ADHD to be in a job for longer than eighteen months, it does become your family. And whether you're working from home and you're online or whether you're in the workplace, it's eight hours a day in the same way that the family life is. And so, it is a hundred percent important. Please carry on. Yeah, so the, the first hub obviously focuses on the job seekers and people who are, who are entrepreneurs or people who work from home. And then the second hub is particularly for employed people in, in STEM, which is subjects around, you know, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Yes. And the reason that's kind of come about is I've been talking to quite a few tech industry um, companies at the moment. And they've been saying that we've got adults that are, are just recognising the neurodivergence after their children have been diagnosed, similar to myself. And they said they've got others that are suspecting they may be neurodivergent and they just don't really know where to start. And it's impacting their workday because, you know, they've got children at home and they're, they're having the challenges that we talked about earlier in relation to school. And they've got challenges with themselves in understanding their neurofibromyalgia profile and affirming that as part of their identity and we both know a process that that is in itself yeah on top of maintaining a full-time job yes you know so the stem hub is really there to help people in a way to understand themselves their family as a neurodivergent family and also to celebrate the amazing amazing minds that we have in stem as neurodivergent you know professionals and and as i said to you previously that was very much inspired by my eldest daughter, who is currently studying physics at Bath. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm very, very proud of her. Um, and she's got that amazing neurodivergent scientific mind. Yes. You know? um, so all my family, my children, my upbringing, my experiences to date, they all kind of really inform the way that I move forward in my advocacy, in the projects that I, I, I oversee, um, mainly because... One of the biggest things for me was when I didn't know about my neuro profile, I never, I felt scared. Yeah. You know, and I felt like, as you said, you know, you feel like you're crazy. Yeah. Yes. And, and now it's complete, so, so, so incredibly different. And I feel so positive and I feel like I can actually pursue the things that I want to pursue. Also, when I talk, I feel heard. Like I can actually explain what's going on in my brain and my body, and I can explain that to other people. And I never felt heard before. I never felt heard if like, things were overstimulating or, you know, if I was impacted by the sensory environment. That I was never heard. And I just want people to have that sense in themselves of well-being where it's all right to be neurodivergent because now I understand how my brain and body work. You know, it's not easy. Don't get me wrong, it's never going to be easy, but actually through learning and through having spaces where as a community we hear each other and we affirm each other, at least then we can actually progress the things that we want to do. Because without those skills, as you said, we're back where you and I were both, Sally, frightened, not knowing what's going on. Gaslighted, gaslit. It's you know, terrible. Running, crashing, going, crashing, trying our best over and yes. over and over again. But without the insights, we just couldn't make, well, I couldn't talk about myself. I couldn't maintain that day to day. And now I can. So I, I think that's I, just, I think, you know, everything that you've said on, on this podcast, what, what I think is so incredible is I love <clears throat> the language that you use. 
Um, I love the way that you use the terminologies and phrases and languages in a really wonderful way. It's very positive, it's very authentic and it's identity driven. And um, the thing is, is that, you know, other people use different languages and, and I just, for me, I don't like it when um, people shut you down and say you're wrong and you're doing this and it's absolutely terrible because a lot of older pe uh, people who are more mature and adults who are trying to discover themselves, this happened to me. I was getting it wrong all over the place because I didn't have a Scooby-Doo. And, and actually my language is better now, but um, it's never going to be a hundred percent and it doesn't matter because it changes all the time anyway but I think that you have been able to explain and describe an incredible way of going back to basics from being parents looking after the kids going through the education system um, I'm also interested in partners you know and when you have a blended family of neurotypical and neurodivergent and then you go into the workplace as well getting that support when you've gone through assessment and diagnosis and for goodness sake making the assessment and diagnosis much easier i'm i want to work with as a psychotherapist i want to work with psychiatrists so that we can assess and we can get involved in it uh, when we are informed and and i just think that what you do is absolutely fantastic and we meet and we need so many more people like you i mean there is so much more awareness now but it is it is it's got to be action that's being taken i mean i suppose what i'd really like to ask is what would be your key message jess in society in order for our community our neurodivergent community to feel included and validated I think it really comes down to having an open mind and listening. You know, we as a community have spent a long time being shut down, being told we're wrong, having our own narratives rewritten for us. Yes. Which, you know, I think for advocates, we have a responsibility. Actually, autistic researchers and professionals, all of our community across the board, and, and uh, autistic and, and neurodivergent more broadly have a responsibility to pave the way in how we want to be represented so thank you for commenting on my language and things like that because actually i think the more that we use neuroaffirmative language and that we are positive the more commonplace that will be absolutely um, and i think you know everyone has the right to identify how they they want to identify I, I do not ever tell people what language that they should use but i know what makes me feel good about myself yes so I, language for me and my family i use the language that i would want people to use with my children yeah, absolutely and, and the people that i love so i use language in a way because i believe it holds so much incredible power so you know, listen to people, understand why we're using these terms, not just the terms themselves. Yes. And understand actually what is the benefit of following the medical the deficit narrative, because I don't see there being a benefit other than cohesion and control a lot of it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and what are the benefits of, of using neuroinclusive language or understanding neurodivergence from a more neuroaffirmative position? And I see those benefits for mental health, for, for um, function, functioning in yes. day life. Mm. I see those benefits in relationship forming. I see those benefits in education. Yeah. I see there being benefits in employment. If we just change our outlook 
and the way we approach neurodivergence and the understanding of neurodivergence, the well-being implications of that will be across people's whole entire lives. Absolutely. Easier said than done. We're talking about systemic change. We're talking about people actually listening to neurodivergent voices, which in itself is a feat. But, you know, I have to believe it will be possible one day, Suddenly, because the alternative is heartbreaking. Well, it's almost the extinction of a, a whole, you know, like the extinction of the of the Neanderthals. It's like, you know, if you if you don't start listening to us, and and one of the things, all those things that you say is absolutely spot on, and I would I, I would add because I was ableist and judgmental, and I didn't understand because I thought I was mentally ill, and when I thought of autistic people. I was looking at, uh, you know, it always goes back to Raymond, but I was looking in the wrong direction. And now I am amongst people. They are my clients, they are my friends, they are the people I'm with online. And actually being with neurodivergent people and having that open mind and using the affirmative um, neuro, inf you know, informed language and just being kind and curious but I think we can do that by being mentors instead of trying to shove things down people's throats. I like the idea of us doing a load of really interesting things and, and people thinking, oh, what are they doing over there? I'd quite like to go and have a look. And mm. if we can at least do that, then we're, we're on the right track. It's not going to happen in my lifetime, but it will happen. And we, we do have to have patience. But we're going to keep doing it. And I have to wish you absolutely all the best with finishing your PhD, with your passion project, with your amazing family and and all the advocacy you do. I am I follow you on LinkedIn and, and you've got amazing posts there and great connections. And you also have um, supporting and celebrating neurodiversity Facebook page. I will ask you after this to please give me um, your links, which I'll include in the show notes. Um, and it just leads me to say, Jessica, I have absolutely thoroughly enjoyed and thought this was a fantastic podcast. And I know our listeners are going to take so much out of the support and advocacy and, and what people can do. You know, that's what it's all about. So thank you very, very much indeed. And it's been great talking to you. Well, thank you, Sally. Take care. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.